Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news podcast. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. The coronavirus second wave in the U.S. and Europe threatens wider closures of the economy and a stalled recovery. The political system in the U.S. seems even more chaotic as President Trump is threatening a coup against the election results as he changes the civilian leadership of the military. And of course, the stock markets continue to soar in spite of it all. Well, the official motto of the United States is, in God we trust, which was actually passed under Eisenhower, I learned today. It seems to be, at least for the financial elites, in the Fed we trust. As crazy as it all seems, there seems to be an underlying faith that all will return to normal. And of course, the normal, as Mark Blythe has said, means paradise for the investor class. Now joining us to discuss these current and crazy times are Rana Faruhar, who's a business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times. She's also the CNN's global economic analyst, and her books include Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, and Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles. And Mark Blythe, he's a political economist at Brown University, and his re- he researches the causes of stability and change in the economy. And as he says, and I'm going to keep doing this every time I introduce him, just because I like it, why people continue to believe stupid economic ideas, despite buckets of evidence to the contrary. Thanks very much for joining us joining me, Rodney and Mark. So, Mark, I'm going to start with you this time. Uh, First of all, how seriously do you take the Trump uh, drama going on here? Uh, I mean, is he, uh, you think he's serious or this is all about keeping the attention all on him as he prepares for his new media empire or whatever comes next? And and why no panic uh, from the financial elites or, or the markets? That's three big questions. I honestly don't know what's going on because every story you can tell is plausible. It may just be he's looking for an exit. It may be the case that he owes a Cayman Island fronted company that we can't identify the beneficial owner $140 million out of $800 million in debts that apparently are outstanding and coming due in the next four years. He has no income stream, so it's perfectly plausible that this is all just basically rile up the base and get the TV contract, get the $100 million for the book, etc., etc. But there's another way of looking at this, which is essentially this is how Central Asian dictators manage transitions. So what you do is you start months before discrediting the opposition and discrediting the vote because it's probably going to go against you. You do this quite, quite obviously. And then the minute it goes against you, you come out and say, see, I told you, fraud, 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 fraud. You've also got a coterie that have joined you, a lot of family members, because it's basically a kleptocracy, and they all join in together. They've all done slightly dodgy things, which collectively, you know, if other people get in, they'll turn into very dodgy things. And you could well end up in jail and people like that do not go to jail. So there is another very plausible narrative of, no, no, he's really serious. Essentially, what he's trying to do is get to the point where you either create a kind of faithless electors crisis, you get one Republican state that refuses to certify, you then do the Hail Mary pass up to the Supreme Court, and you see where you go from there. And even if that doesn't work, you've got even more time to suck 60% of the money out of the pack you've just set up so that you can actually pay Igor back the debts in the Cayman Islands. 
So either of these work, you know, take your pick. You know, how serious is it? This is the United States, for God's sake. We don't do this crap. I don't know why you're defaming Igor, Mark, or choosing That's, a Russian you know, name, really, I know. really. There's, there's no <laughs> collusion. There's just connection. Okay, now, this is the United States, right? I volunteered to become a citizen of this place. I am one of the few people who actually pays taxes. And what are you doing, right? This is ridiculous. This is absurd. This is literally Banana Republic stuff. Stop this. Grow up. Now, the last thing I'll say on this is, of course, the Democrats, as usual, are bringing a butter knife to a gunfight. And are both like, you know, uh, well, the norms, the norms. No, no, he'll go. Don't worry, he'll go. How long have these people been misreading this guy, right? Yeah. 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 No, no. This is more serious than we think. Yeah. But whether it plays out to its full extent, well, we will know because we're all in the slow-moving coup d'etat. I've heard three interesting things from three people that I, I, I think have, um, have a little wisdom on this topic. So Tony Schwartz, who wrote, uh, co-wrote The Art of the Deal with Trump, and is, of course, just completely, you know, I mean, turned against him, is trying to redeem himself. He, he said the other day, you cannot overestimate this guy's strategy in terms of figuring out how to monetize and brand events. And that's exactly what's happening. Right here, he's. I mean, it, it's a coup, but it's sort of a brand coup. I mean, you know, it's. I think that it's actually going to be. I, I think you're absolutely right that it's about what is the next platform, what is the next, you know, the television show, the, the, um, you know, the the new venture that that he's going to be able to capitalize on because of all of this. The other thing I heard was from Maggie Haberman, you know, the New York Times reporter, who is, of course, very tight and is going to do a book, uh, going to do a book about all this. And she said something interesting. She said, you know, people don't understand that for him, it's all about the show. It's about watching how the show is going to end. And so there's this bizarre combination of things that seem entirely diabolical. And I agree pretty much with what Mark is saying, but also a sense that it's all reality TV, you know, that he could he could go away quite. I mean, he may well turn into a pumpkin on Jan 20th. He'll, he, he'll turn up somewhere else. You know, don't worry, he will. Um, but there is a kind of a reality, unreality element to it, which I, I have always found that fascinating. I, I mean, you see it in TV as a medium. You see it with the Kardashians. I mean, this is this is who he is as a president, that kind of real, unreal aspect of things. Um, I do think, though, that that it's it's interesting what a gulf what a, what a hole he leaves in the Republican party and that's what's so interesting where does the Republican party go from here because um you know the people that voted for him they're not going to vote for Mitt Romney um i you know there's maybe some of the economic nationalists like your your um portmans or hawleys or rubios could capture some of that vote Possibly some libertarians would go with Rand Paul, but but there's a big hole in the Republican Party where this guy was, is, and how that gets filled is going to be very interesting to see. Yeah, I think it's it's what he learned from professional wrestling. Uh, when you're standing, yes. you're standing in the middle of the of the ring, and there's eighty five thousand people watching. It's it's also what actors call the B moment. It's what you do in between what you, your lines and you need to get everybody mm. focused on you for that moment. So he just has to act like this is a real coup, even though I don't think it can be successful. I don't think he thinks it could be successful, but he's still mm. the story. 
and and he and he just won't become irrelevant on January 20th. He will still be the story because he'll have something in the works that will be about him again. I kind of thought that he might, you know, try and flee the country because, of course, you know, I mean, there there is the possibility of jail. But I was talking to a lefty politico um, source of mine in D.C. and he's like, well, well, we can't let him leave the country. And I said, well, what does that mean? Well, he'd, he'd have to get Florida to extradite him to New York. I don't know that. I don't think Florida would extradite him to New York. <laughs> I was like, I'm wondering, were you talking about what happened to Epstein's going to happen? I don't know. Anyway. So, so Mark, the, go, go ahead. One, yeah, one jump in. Yeah. On that one, which, is, which is the following. 70% of Republicans are now convinced that the election has been stolen. It's very hard to undo that damage. If this was just about him, right, it's just him in the show, whatever, that's it. So there's an incredible corruption of the system, which he has encouraged and is definitely part of. And to go back to the idea of the whole in the party, I agree with that, but I would push it further. He is the party. If you think about the way that the Virginia, the Georgia senators uh, are behaving, Purdue and Loeffler, Essentially, you've got someone who should have been struck off for basically moving her portfolio around because of private information over COVID, who still manages to get close to being reelected. And the two of them have got nothing without Trump. Right? Unless he, be, if he, if he, be, he gives them this, they're good. If he goes that, they're down. So the whole party is absolutely being dragged along. And why do I do get worried about the kind of, if you will, if you will, the institutional inertia that gets built here? Because if there's a, a leadership vacuum. And he is also the base in terms of that mobilization. Then this goes on without him, right? It pushes on that direction, that politics all moves that way. I think it might be in uh, Trump's interest for uh, the Republicans to lose the two Senate seats in Georgia, because if the Senate is controlled by the Republicans, Mitch McConnell becomes the story, not Trump. Where if it's a Democratic-controlled Senate. Trump is the leader of the opposition, extra parliamentary leader of the opposition with his media empire. Uh, I don't know that Trump actually gives a damn about anything other than he needs to remain the issue. Let's, let's jump in a bit in terms of what you're hearing from the financial elites and so on. Uh, apparently, the preponderance of Wall Street money went to Biden, and then there was the sub-story that they were hoping to have a Republican Senate to go along with the President Biden. It looks like they're probably going to get what they wanted. Is that what you were hearing, Rana? And how do they feel about the current situation? Yeah, the Biden camp was very, very strategic in terms of trying to be middle of the road enough that they could pull away some of those kind of moderate Republicans, um, the financier types. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens now. There's so much signaling going on. It's fascinating um, in terms of who's getting what positions and how it's going to play out. Um, what I understand is that Biden himself as a man, as a person, is much more progressive and would like to make much more um, systemic change uh, to financial reform, um, you know, green stimulus, kind of re reconnecting Wall Street to Main Street. And you can see that there are some appointments. Um, Gary Gensler, for example, former CFTC chair, who's now the chief um, uh, financial advisor for, for the president-elect, 
he's an interesting guy. He was a he was a former Goldman Sachs guy, but also a big deal reformer. You know, used to be part of the Bob Rubin camp, but really kind of had a come to Jesus moment after the financial crisis and did some really good things at CFTC. And I think um, could do more. In fact, he's been up at MIT uh, looking into things like decentralized technologies, cryptocurrencies, linking community banking to kind of high tech apps like that. That's that's pretty interesting to me. Um, on where tech is going to go, that's a big question for financiers. Is big tech going to get regulated? And the jury's very much out. You know, Biden's bringing in some of the old uh, Obama team that was very friendly with Google. I mean, you know, that Google was the number one lobbyist in and out of the Obama White House. But again, it goes to, is Biden the man going to be making decisions or will the party operatives around him have more weight? I think particularly given disinformation around his son and sort of the way in which he got chewed up by the whole social media Facebook machine, I think he may be tougher on tech than than we would expect, given some of the appointees. That will then, uh, of course, have an effect on the, mar- the markets because 40% of the value, 42 actually at the moment, percent of the value of the S&P is just a handful of big tech stops, stocks. They create 13% of all jobs. That is the exact divide that we know needs to be bridged. Um, but doing it is going to require really pissing off some some big deal lobbyists. Another side, to, another side to the tech story, which came out of the election, of course, was Uber mm. spending two hundred million in California. Yes. So we get used to the idea that Google is a problem because Google dominates searches and the algorithms do this, that, and the next thing. Then we get Facebook because it weaponizes disinformation, and then Twitter is this, etc. And Uber was getting a pass for a while. Yeah. Now, what's just happened in California is that for $200 million, a company just got to write how its own labor law. Yes. Right? So basically, the state of California has ceded authority to structure its own labor markets to a corporation. Yeah. And this is getting no commentary whatsoever. This is huge. Yeah. Right? So uh, the Democrats are, oh, $15 an hour minimum wage, mm, marvelous, right? You just allowed a corporation to take California's labor markets and restructure them according to their own terms. What are you going to do about that? I, I think that Rana is right, that there is a more progressive impulse in there. And I think that what we're seeing or we're going to see, I think, is uh, more examples of big tech overreach, mm-hmm. almost daring them, putting their hands in the fire to see how far they can go. Mm-hmm. And at some point, they may get their fingers burned. It's interesting, too, because it starts to, I'll just say one more thing, Paul, it starts to, the big tech conversation starts to intersect with the foreign policy conversation. Um, Because, you know, one of the first things I expect that Biden will do once he kind of gets the COVID emergency and the domestic situation under control is get on a plane when there's a vaccine, get on a plane, go to Europe, make nice with allies that Trump has alienated, and in particular, the Germans. Um, around Chinese tech and trade issues, because, you know, the one world, two systems problem is going to remain with us. It's very clear. It was interesting. The week before the election, um, the Chinese plenary was actually putting out statements about their plan for 2035. Of course, they actually think beyond the year. Um, And it was all about independence, not only from Western technology, but Western supply chains, um, an entire vision for sort of a ring-fenced ecosystem. 
Europe has its own um, issues with how tech and trade are going to work and be governed. I think that we have this tripolar world. But really, if the U.S. is going to go it alone as China pulls away and we haven't even gotten into the p- potential for digital RMB in the post-dollar world, um, Biden is going to need to make nice with Europe. There's going to need to be some kind of alliance um, about what is the t- 21st century digital economy going to look like? How is it going to be governed? Are we going to let a handful of giant Silicon Valley uh, companies run everything? The Europeans hope no. And they're sort of betting on this idea of what they're calling a digital middlestand, you know, referring to these small and mid-sized family-owned companies, um, a lot of them in Germany that have been world beaters in the industrial economy, but can they make the leap to digital? Um, You know, it's a very messy world and we're going to need allies. Um, And so I think that if we could get a transatlantic tech and trade deal and do a little bit of bartering, that would really help put pressure on the big tech firms. Uh, BlackRock had a research report out uh, a few months ago, which says the rivalry is between U.S. and China is going to intensify no matter what the next administration or who the next president is. Um, and it says that countries are going to be asked to choose sides. The United States is going to try to make countries choose sides between United States and China. And it's interesting, in Biden's uh, climate plan, one of his big points of emphasis on fossil fuel subsidies is that they're going to pressure countries that have signed on to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative to come over to American financing instead. And as part of that agreement will be to uh, drop lower drop fossil fuel subsidies. But it was linked to the issue of rivalry with China, not the issue of just lowering fossil fuel subsidies. Everything's going to get linked to China, I think, in the future. Um, but if you're trying, if you're trying to link it through Germany, you're going to have a problem, mm-hmm. and the problem is the following: they are going to be the unreliable partner because I, that's they're completely a good point. conflicted. They're completely conflicted. Take, for example, the scandal over the Volkswagen factory that supposedly is allowed the use of forced labour, and the mealy-mouthed apology by the CFO, why uh, by the CEO, I should say. Why is this the case? Because there are 13 other factories and their entire growth model is based upon basically selling cars to China, Mm -hmm. uh, diesel cars at that. Um, They're nowhere with electrics. The notion of a digital middle stand is one of those just brilliant EU inventions, which makes no (laughs) sense whatsoever. Because ultimately, all of these are winner-takes-all technologies, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what happens. You, you, You can have two or three or five and you end up with one. And the Americans have developed those technologies for the English-speaking world, which is the digital world that the West operates in. So in a weird way, it almost would have been better if Trump had won. Because if Trump had won, the Europeans just have to get serious about what they're doing because they would be threatened on two sides. Mm. With Biden coming on board, they think that they can go back to playing nice with the Americans while getting their gas from Russia Mm. and then playing nicey-nicey with China while talking a good game on NATO. And they probably will be able to do that. And that's the worst of all worlds for both the United States and for Europe. You know, I think that's a very strong argument. But I will I will say, and I am laughing about your, yes, digital Middlestand is, it's one of those things that you can imagine in Brussels being cooked up and then translated, the paperwork translating it in 19 languages. But, but, but here's the thing. Germany in particular, exports are the thing. And if Google comes in with, say, Nest, you know, its home, uh, smart smart home device, um, financial services, healthcare, and starts to 
basically grab data in the Internet of Things in the B2B world in which Europe has had, you know, a really robust economy. As you point out, Germany sells a lot of stuff to the Chinese. Um, that actually starts to really get them where they live. And I do think that they they know that they're they're between a rock and a hard place. I mean, they know that they've got to rethink and get in the game, get in the digital game and become more competitive. And so that's the one thing that I think is a little bit different. The other thing is, all right, you've got the, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons being amazing consumer brands. Will they be able to make that leap into business um, and, and industry, which is I mean, not to get too wonky, but it, it, it's, it's very particular. A lot of the data functions, the way sensors are used. I mean, it is, it is sort of a different game, but um, there's no doubt that it's a tripolar world. Europe's going to feel a lot of pressure from both China and the U.S. And I think what's going to happen is certain parts of Europe, like Greece and Italy, are going to get kind of pulled into the Chinese orbit. And then maybe other countries, certainly the U.K., you know, possibly parts of Korea, but will be stick more with the U.S. Okay, I'm going to just switch gears a bit here. So let's go back to the U.S. Let's assume that the Republicans do control Senate. Uh, what can Biden do through, Mark, through executive order? And to what extent can the Fed, which seems to be pushing the boundaries of what the Fed is supposed to be doing or has been doing. Well, given that Ron has a wonderful article To what extent can Biden work with a friendly Fed if the Senate simply won't pass it? <laughs> No, 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 no. Yeah. But let me go for the Fed. I want to. Right. I'll talk about the Fed, right? Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, so uh, Brainerd yesterday, uh, one of the Fed governors, uh, I thought on the ninth, um, came out with a statement that finally acknowledged the the first step of a two step. And the first step is this: that climate change causes financial risk because what it risks is massive sudden mispricing, right? The next step on this is what every other central bank has already accepted in the Green Central Bank Network, is that the financial system, by basically allowing carbon firms to issue debt, is actually a cause of climate risk. Hmm. Now, it's too early for the United States to admit that, but they know. And this is just stage one. Explain this issue of why carbon uh, producers issuing debt is such a risk. So we have a COVID crisis. Energy prices collapse. You have tradable bonds in the bond market. You are an energy company. Fed comes in and puts a floor under the price of all bonds, including your bonds, without making any differentiation between bonds that are carbon neutral, carbon positive, and carbon negative. So basically, you're subsidizing the very thing that you're trying to control, which is carbon risk. Right. So the British government, the Bank of England, has come out and said, in two years' time, we're going to have a whole new framework where we go way beyond ESG, environmental and social goal standards, and what we're going to do is actually give you proper metrics so we can say this is a good bond, this is a bad bond, this is a terrible bond. And we're going to shift our monetary policy accordingly. And the story behind all this is very straightforward. Back in the 1970s, there was an idea that politicians, it was some kind of, to, to quote Adam Tooze on this, anti-democratic conservative fantasy, that all politicians were essentially socialists. And if you didn't control them, they would spend us into hell. And it turned out that that was complete nonsense. And you didn't need heroic central bankers standing against the masses because there was a huge anti-inflationary constituency in, in mass publics. So you're pushing on an open door. 
Now, we killed the inflation we've been so worried about 30 years ago. We've discovered this time and time again since the financial crisis. And the problem that central banks have now is rather than politicians doing too much, they do too little of anything that is important in terms of multi-generational thinking or investment. So they have reinterpreted their mandate to be, well, if we need to be the guardians, we need to be the guardrails against bad behavior. This is the new bad behavior. We're going to basically take this role on and push it as fast as we can. And what we saw with Brainard's uh, speech the other day was, I think, the opening salvo of the Fed moving in the same direction as the Bank of England and the ECB on green policy. And this over the Biden administration is going to be hugely consequential, regardless of what happens in the Senate. That's really interesting. You know, one thing before I answer the question about executive order, Paul, I want to just um, amplify something in what Mark uh, is saying, which is that oftentimes, um, and this was certainly true in the Trump administration, governments will try and push policy in a certain direction, like Trump had his trade war, right? And he was all about deficits with China. Well, he did things with tariffs and with trade, but he didn't think about the financial system within that. And and the financial system itself wasn't curbed. So what I'm so interested in what you're saying about how the Fed comes in, you put a, a, a floor under bonds, both good and bad, carbon neutral, not carbon neutral. That's exactly where we are right now. That's why Trump's trade war actually didn't get anywhere. And in fact, the deficit situation from his perspective is worse than it was when he started because he also did tax cuts. Companies could still move capital wherever they wanted. They basically just bought share, uh, you know, moved it around in a sort of a shell game to places where it was most tax efficient, uh, used whatever they had to bring back to the U.S. on share buybacks. And so things have to get integrated, which is, I think, uh, what you're sort of saying, Mark, is policy has to be integrated across central banking, across the real economy. I mean, that is a big lift. And um and that's what has to happen. But to your point about what what Biden can do, he can actually do a fair bit on trade. Um, he can also leverage the power of the federal government, which I think is really interesting. And he could make some statements going back to Mark's point about how California has just ceded its labor policy to Uber. Well, you know, Biden could say, you know what, we're not going to do any federal contracts as part of uh, Green Stimulus or CARES Act without union labor, or we're not going to do it if the environmental standards are not at a certain level. You know, he can start to say, you know, Buy America is a powerful tool in the arsenal. And if you're going to be part of that, you have to abide by X, Y and Z standards. That's a very, very, um, I think, very important Thing, not just in sheer economic terms, but in sort of political messaging terms. Mark, can he, in cooperation with the Fed, uh, actually finance, like he, if there isn't this big green infrastructure project, and, a, and I must say a green infrastructure project that isn't just financialized for its own sake, but it's actually effective. I mean, I actually don't care if it gets financialized, if it's effective. The problem is usually mm. the two don't go together. But mm. can the Fed break some of the bounds of what it's supposed to do if the Senate is completely obstructionist? I mean, it is. it, it already should be declared a national emergency, the climate situation. Is there room for the Fed to do, for example, can the Fed loan money to uh, some big infrastructure enterprise that's either set up by executive order or even something that already exists that just gets repurposed? There's nothing in principle to stop them doing this. In fact, the ECB has already given us a model with what are called their 
Teltros or TLTRO loans. And they also have something very useful called uh, dual interest rates. So they could basically, if they decide, say, okay, any company that wants to build green infrastructure will give you a 30-year loan at minus three. So that means even if you're making 1% in a zero inflation environment, you're making four real. So that's huge, right? Given uh, you, just, just in terms of profit margins. So you can do this, but then that makes the central bank, if you will, you know, the giant enterprise investor. Mm. And you can see that happening in Europe with that tradition of sort of cooperation amongst banks, et cetera, with industrial projects is much bigger than it is in the United States through capital markets and also traditionally the sort of hands-off role of the state. In principle, there's nothing to stop them doing this. In practice, it would be much easier if Congress just thought it was a good idea. But the problem there is if you a really simple way to think about this election and I've just written a piece on this, which I'll be happy to send you and anybody who wants it, is it's called the Death of the Carbon Coalition. Mm. If you look at all the states that vote red, they're the ones where you have the most room for carbon taxes. Why? Because their business model is usually heavily imbricated in the extraction, refinement, transportation, and end use of carbon products. Right. So if you're basically saying, I'm going to phase out oil, we're moving away from fossil fuels, You've got these green coasts where 70% of, G, of a GVA is made in the country. And you've got these red states, it's 30% of the equivalent. And they're based on carbon. And you're saying, well, isn't it constant? Shouldn't the Congress just move on this? Well, the bit of Congress that's in control with such a minority of the population are completely indebted to a carbon model. Yeah. And what we're talking about and what the Fed is thinking about is basically a mortal threat to their livelihoods. You know, it's interesting, too, because I, I was speaking to a couple of union folks about the Green New Deal issues. And they said, you know, we're watching very carefully to see whether labor standards are really going to be up to snuff here. Because if you look at what, why does the average coal miner or steel worker not vote for these sorts of plans? Well, because... Fossil fuel jobs uh, pay about 40% above the median wage, and clean tech jobs pay, they're like a couple dollars above your average U.S. wage, but they're, they're really not very high. And there's also, going back to foreign policy, there's a great irony, kind of ugly irony here, which is that one of the reasons clean tech jobs are paid, paid so poorly compared to fossil fuels is that they're non-unionized and they're outsourced from Europe to the U.S., we are the emerging market in this case. You know, a lot of the big Scandinavian wind producers, German solar producers, you know, they, 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 they have to abide by much higher labor standards at home. So they outsource these jobs to us and then pay far less. So that's another thing that we need to lock down uh, in any kind of a new trade deal with Europe. But if you had the Fed playing this role, uh, this idea of a just transition. I mean, why should fossil fuel workers bear the burden for something that the whole society has profited from, quote unquote, whole society, obviously in a very unequal way. But why not keep, I mean, is it really that much money to keep paying fossil fuel workers what they're being paid until they transition to equally paid jobs? I, I looked at it with Bob Poland, the economist. He, he looked at Pennsylvania. I think it's 123,000 Workers in Pennsylvania are involved directly in the fossil fuel business. Of course, there's an indirect, but people making the kind of wages you're talking about. I mean, that's not very many people to subsidize for a while. Mark, I mean, couldn't the Fed just include that in part of this green investment? It could, but what you're also doing is something that deeply identifies, particularly in this moment with political identity. You're mm -hmm. saying to people that you are redundant. 
you're saying that what you're doing is toxic, that what you're doing is harmful, that you are not contributing positively to our society, that you need to be regulated out of existence. That's a hard sell. You have to be very careful in how we do this. A better way to frame it is if you think about the 1930s after the Agricultural Adjustment Act, there was a new deal that involved business and labor. There was also one that brought in farmers. And the basic deal was that cities and urban areas were going to pay more for food. And that was going to be the cross-subsidy that made the, uh, the, the rural environment stable through the post-war period. So we need to come to some other type of accommodation which explicitly addresses this. If you're talking about a just transition, it's not what activists in cities think. A just transition is you make Oklahoma and West Virginia ground zero for your activism in terms of your investment. You make sure that you basically transit there at the highest possible level and you do a demonstration effect to those red states that this is not their end, this is a new beginning that we all share in. So far, we have been completely unable to do this. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that Biden didn't make more of an issue of just transition in the election campaign, especially in Pennsylvania. But on the other hand, if you do that, you have to really come out and say you're phasing out fossil fuel, which he kind of just blurbed out at the end of one debate and didn't really want to say at all. You know, that's it's very sharp that you caught that. I caught that point, too. And I thought that was a missed opportunity big time. But, you know, these things are I mean, look the way we're talking. These are complicated topics. Just the, the amount of, you know, discussion about Fed policy right now. It's not something that's so easy to message on the campaign trail. And I think he was right ultimately to make this a referendum on Donald Trump and COVID. You know, that was the, in fact, the best thing I heard him say, um, it was a, I think it was at a rally in um, Wisconsin where he really pinpointed what a con man uh, Trump is. You know, this idea that, okay, yeah, he can speak to the people. He's like, you know, I grew up with guys like Donald Trump my whole life. Um, that thought, uh, you know, they, they've never seen a suburb. They thought that they could, um, you know, just do whatever they wanted and get away with it because their dad had money. I mean, he just, he pinpointed the guy as a con man. That was the right thing to do to get elected. Everything else can come after. I was hoping he would actually start calling him Don the Con in the debates, but he was too dignified oh, yeah. to do that, I suppose. I know. So, um, so how deep does this crisis get? That's the same question I asked the first time, Mark, but now the second wave is is we're in it and we're not even f nearly fully in it. The cold weather really hasn't even shown up yet. Uh, on the radio today, I'm, I'm hearing various doctors saying it looks like there needs to be more closed down, uh, shutdowns. Uh, we've heard that there needs, when Biden actually takes power, one of the first things he may have to do is a really serious national closing down of large parts of the economy. Um, what, I mean, it's either going to be scientifically necessary or not. It's looking like it will be. Um, but again, doesn't the, can't the Fed create more subsidies for people and less asset protection, perhaps? If we start with the Fed, we start with the simple fact that their pipes, their plumbing goes to Wall Street. It doesn't go to Main Street. Yeah. Fiscal yeah. policy is meant to go to Main Street, and that's basically ad hoc at best. In terms of COVID and pinning it all on Trump, well, the Belgian numbers are much worse than the American numbers now. In fact, most of Europe is. Britain's a disaster. Scotland, not so much, but England certainly is. And, you know, the short story is we're very forgetful creatures. Because mm -hmm. back in March, I distinctly remember all of those experts who study this stuff saying, right, here's how this is going to go. It's going to be really crappy through the summer. Then it'll lay off a bit. Then the big one's coming in the winter. 
and then we might get lucky and get a vaccine and get out of it after that. It's pretty much on course. Yes, that's we, right. Why are we surprised by any of this? This is exactly what we were told would happen. Yeah. That, no, 100%. I think, I mean, if I step way back, I completely agree with what Mark just said. I think we're going to see a major culling, certainly of small businesses, probably some cascading corporate debt um, after the winter because, you know, uh, a lot of the firepower uh, is gone. It's unclear if there's a Republican Senate, how much of a fiscal package you're going to be able to get through. So let's assume a, another deep recession, but then stand back from that and going to what Mark says, we get out the other side. How do you fix things? Well, the Fed is, it, it's, it can't really change reality on Main Street. It's like we're all stuck in this magical thinking that we've been in really since the 1980s. Uh, which is the the time that interest rates kind of trend interest rates started going down, 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 down. And politicians of both stripes, Reagan Bush, but all the, also the Clintonian Democrats, basically decided that they didn't want to deal with guns and butter debates. They wanted to have the markets make the decisions uh, between tough, tough decisions between different interest groups and who to prioritize. And, um, uh, and so that's what happened. And the Fed took over. And because interest rates were so high and we had a long way to go down, um, you know, we were able to have that kind of financialized economy. Also, we were helped by the fact that um, U.S. was globalizing at that time, foreign capital was coming in. You know, there were all these factors that allowed this sort of saccharine economy that was um, completely based on asset bubbles rather than on Main Street innovation to continue. I have thought for some time that we were at the end of that. I mean, I wrote my book about this in 2016. I kind of thought we were going to see it popping then. We definitely got a few more years. Now, how long do we have now? That's the big question. I mean, you started a while back, Paul, by asking where investors are. I think I said this the last time we were on, but there's basically two bets in the market right now, and they're either on stocks or gold. And stocks... Uh, the bet is, yeah, the Fed can keep this party going a little while longer. And gold is like, you know, holy hell, uh, we are headed towards being Zimbabwe. The dollar is going to be devalued. China is going to decouple much faster than we think it will, aided by digital currency, which that is something that I'm, I'm watching very closely. In some ways, it's the most important external factor in all of this. I was fascinated by the... Um, the Communist Party sort of slapping Jack Ma around um, around the Alibaba IPO, the Ant IPO. So Alibaba is, you know, of course, Jack Ma's company, Ant Financial. It's the big sort of Amazon. It's a combination uh, Amazon, Google, you know, um, e-tailer content provider in 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 China. And they were supposed to do an IPO. And Jack Ma, you know, kind of went out and got a bit too big for his britches and was criticizing the party's um, financial uh, system. And they said, well, hold up, let's let's step back a bit. Let's see about this IPO. And it was such an interesting message. It said two things. First of all, it said that in China, government is in charge, unlike in the US where markets are in charge. But it also said Ant Financial is going to be a very crucial way 
that the one belt, one road um, trade routes and this sort of new Chinese in, internal system of supply chains and, and this sort of new coalition of countries that are orienting towards China economically, that will be an important vehicle through which trade will happen. Um, and, and this is already happening. I mean, you've got tiny little mom and pop retailers in the middle of um, you know, China that can sell to big European companies via digital currency delinked from the dollar. That could change things really, really quickly. And that will then have an impact on what not only Joe Biden, but what any future administration can do. The U.S. still enjoys this exorbitant and, you know, at this point, unfounded dollar privilege. And I think that that will will change. I'm going to be conservative and say sometime between the next five and 15 years dramatically, but it could be quicker. And when you say in the United States, markets are in charge, but but markets means big, massive financial monopolies and tech monopolies. It's not like some spontaneous markets. We're talking real people running big institutions. Yes, absolutely. But we're talking about um, a system that is fueled by easy money that is supplied by the Fed and increasingly may be supplied by Fed and Treasury together. Now, okay, um, investors tend to not like that kind of collaboration because it often doesn't end well. Um, you know, countries print money, Weimar, Germany, they print money when they're trying to do things to paper over problems. Now, I want to say, I would love it. I would love, love, love it if Joe Biden could somehow bring together this coalition to do what was do what essentially we did in the you know 50s and 60s investing in in internet technology or 100 years ago investing in railroads where the public sector goes in and sort of seeds ground and says hey this is the new new thing we're going to we're going to push into green technology because we know that tr- decarbonizing the economy is the way to create real main street growth we're going to change our whole economy we're going to put union guys to work retrofitting um, windows. We're going to invest in R&D around clean tech and connect it with quantum computing and all kinds of things. If that could happen, I think that would be an amazing thing. But there's a big risk that you just end up getting more debt and it's unproductive. I hope that's not the case. But if it is, given everything else that's happening in the world, if Europe holds together and the euro becomes a a more important uh, reserve currency, China goes its own way, then the dollar doesn't get to stand alone so much anymore. And then debt starts to matter more for the US. And that has political consequences. Mark, would you agree? I would I would agree with that. I I think that's a very plausible scenario. And I'm basically a dollar bull um, in this, but mainly for the following reason. Uh, For all the deficits out there in the world, there has to be surpluses and the surplus countries have to hold dollars. And so long as China can't internationalize its currency, which is why it's pooling in, why it's trying to be this very large quasi-autarctic economy, then there's nothing for anyone else to hold at a sufficient level. And the Europeans thus far seem to lack the ambition to basically make the the euro that type of instrument. And And it's also doubtful if they can't manage transfers within the eurozone, Basically, becoming a global liquidity prop, you know, pump that becomes very difficult for them. They can't run those deficits the way the Americans can. The Germans will freak out if they have to run deficits on that scale. So there's a question of what do you swap into, and that's the main thing that keeps the system going. And there's no doubt that China. I think it's very, very important. The digital currency, central bank run money in China is incredibly important, not just for surveillance but for decoupling. I think that's exactly right. 
But what saves the dollar is the natural experiment that the Chinese ran in 2015, when they basically tried to lift controls a little bit and nearly a trillion dollars went right out of the country. Thereby telling the upper level administration, you better be a bit more authoritarian because your own investor class would rather live in Vancouver, Seattle or Australia than anywhere in your own country. And, you know, this is what I say to the, to the dollar people, to the gold bugs that I encounter from time to time. At the end of the day, you're going to have to turn your gold into money. And, you know, deep down inside, it's not going to be remedy. <laughs> that's interesting. Well, that goes to, I mean, that's a very plausible story. And it's fascinating because as much as I could believe the story I, I just told, I could also believe what you just told, which I think says we're at a big pendulum shift in, in the world order. Because I agree that I, I can't imagine, um, you know, putting my gold holdings, which was significant, into RMB. But you know what? If I lived in Shenzhen, I might. You know, I, I think that there's there there's a whole new there's a whole new world out there that simply is not oriented towards the U.S. And as the U.S. increasingly orients itself, it doesn't do what China's doing. It's not basically trying to invest in itself to boost itself up to have a very high level of sustainable domestic consumption and also go down a green path. I mean, it's very significant that Xi has said we are going to go carbon neutral because the Communist Party doesn't come out and say stuff like that to then not live up to it. That's right. That's right. They never do that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. this is basically saying to the United States, you guys, you're going to go down your own particular little plug hole if you're not careful. We're over here doing our own stuff. Let's see how it follows. And if that's the case, and countries are going to have to choose what side they're on, and I'm not so sure they really have to, but that being said, uh, most of the population of the world gets the green emergency, the climate emergency here. Uh, and if China's the one that's actually leading the way to a carbon neutral economy, and the United States is still in, at, at, you know, paralyzed at best and worst in, back in 2024, back into climate denial again. 100%. It's all, it's all about, and, and you could say this in so many areas, um, 5G. The Chinese have for 15 years, 20 years, been slowly, methodically taking positions on these wonky standard setting boards that nobody cared about until they did. And now the 5G, whole architecture of 5G, which is basically, you know, what's going to grow the planet and help make decarbonization a reality is going to be a Chinese-led um, uh, a position. It is incredible. I mean, I remember, just as a side note, I remember being in China um, it was over a decade ago, and and the, the 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 rapidity with which things can happen if a policy change is implemented, they they for some reason they decided to get rid of plastic bags, you know, like we you know, the little bodega plastic type bags. Yeah. I'm telling you, within 48 hours, you couldn't find a plastic bag in the country. I mean, it was it was incredible. Mark, I know you guys got to go, so you get the final word, Mark. Whatever you want. No, let's bring. Let's try and bring it back to COVID, and let's bring about the election and and the point made earlier about you know capacity, if you will. I think a lot of this comes down to we spent forty years not just making the economy more unequal and more fragile, and this speaks to seventy percent of Republicans believing that the election's been stolen, at least according to some polls. We've really exhausted that kind of how can I put it social capital that comes with well functioning societies. 
And there are certain countries in the world, usually small open economies that are quite rich, that manage to do this quite well, mainly because you can't take the costs of adjustment and shove them onto someone else because the place is too damn small, right? You know, that's it. You're, you, you, there's no one to pass the buck to, in a sense. And, and what worries me is that we now enter into a world with a climate emergency coming down, whereby the choice for big countries is either a kind of dysfunction and a kind of fragility and a fragilizing of their governance capacity and just an inability to get stuff done and an angry politics that results versus the G solution, which I am not a fan of, which is essentially you will all be monitored, right? And we will do this and everyone will jump in 48 hours. And if you don't, there are serious costs. This is not yeah. a fun thing to do either. Yeah. And then throw it in the middle of that. If I'm a member of the global investor class, <laughs> if only, but if I were a member of the global <laughs> investor class, where would I want to go with this, right? Can I have courts and freedom and all the stuff that I like about, you know, the Western system, which allows liquidity and safety and security of my assets? Or do I want something that actually works, that I'm willing to surrender a lot of those values for? And that's where that pendulum is. You know, I'll, I'll just say one thing, Mark, which I think, and Paul, that you'll get a kick out of. <laughs> the global investor class is so decoupled from what's happening on the ground. And and this I a story that happened to me recently sort of speaks to this. I'm in the process of getting ready to auction my third book, which is about the post-neoliberal world. And I was talking to a source about it. And you were mentioning, Mark, that you're the only person paying taxes. I'm the second to only person paying taxes. Um, my source was saying, what a great idea. You know, you should really um, talk to your agent about if there's a way to offshore uh, your advance because then you won't have to take the 50% tax hit in New York. I'm like, this is a book about the post neoliberal world. And what? what, what, what like, what? what? You, you, at that point, honestly, you should have said to him, no, no, my book is called Why You Should Pay Taxes. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Oh, I need to lie down. Yeah. I've got to lie down. All right. Well, Rana, Mark, thanks very much. Well, let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm -hmm.